Friends, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 10 this morning. If you were with us last week, you'll recall that we sort of turned a page in the narrative of Luke's gospel, starting in chapter 9. If you recall last week, we talked about how Jesus and his disciples, over the course of the next 10 chapters in Luke's gospel, are on an epic road trip. Jesus has resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He has set his face towards Jerusalem. And for the next 10 chapters of Luke's gospel, Jesus and his disciples are journeying towards Jerusalem, which would take Jesus to ultimately the Passion Week, where he would give his life for each one of us so that we might have salvation and new life in him. So for the next 10 chapters, we are on the road with Jesus. And we're going to be continuing this journey today as we look at Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 24. I shared this story with you a few years ago, but you may not remember it, and there's probably a number of new people here, so I thought it would be worth sharing again because it's very fitting for our passage this morning. When I was in college, I had the opportunity to spend a month in Ecuador. I was there for a month-long anthropology trip with my school, Bethel College, And uh, on one of the afternoons when we had some free time, a buddy and mine were walking around downtown Quito, Ecuador, the capital of the country, and we decided, hey, it might be fun to try to go down to the American embassy and see if we can meet our ambassador. And uh, my buddy kind of looked at me and said, nobody does that. And I was like, well, why not? Let's try it, right? So, So we walked down and we found the American embassy down in downtown Quito, and we walked up to the front gate, and there was this young Marine standing guard at the front gate, and We went up, we pushed the buzzer, you know, and he came up and he said, can I help you? And I said, yeah, I'm Jason Carlson. I'm an American citizen. I was just wondering if we could meet the ambassador today. And this young Marine says, nobody does that. (laughs) And uh, and I said, well, you know, I just thought we'd give it a shot. I thought it'd be fun to meet our ambassador. And he kind of just thought he's, well, I don't know. I'll see what I can do, you know. So he he walked uh, back behind the gate again and disappeared for a few minutes. And after a while, he came back out with a guy dressed in this dark business suit. And this man comes up and uh, he says, uh, now, how can we help you, sir? And I said, I'm not looking for any help. I just thought I'd come and see if I could meet our ambassador. And he looks at me and he says, nobody does that. <laughs> and again, I said, well, I know. I just thought it might be fun and something cool to do. And, and, uh, and he says, well, who are you? And I shared again, I'm a student here and I'm from America. And I just thought this would be a fun experience. So he disappears for about 10 minutes, and uh, after a while, he comes back and he says, come along, please follow me. And they opened the gates to the embassy, and my buddy and I walked in, and this guy in the business suit, he led us through all this uh, different security levels and through these different floors and up this elevator to the fourth floor of the embassy, and and, uh, sure enough, he led us right into the office of the American ambassador to Ecuador. And uh, we walked into the ambassador's office, and he gets up from behind his desk, and he walks up, and now, uh, tell me, what are you here for? How can I help you? I said, I'm not here for any help. I've been, I just thought it'd be fun to meet you. I mean, who gets to meet the ambassador, right? And he goes, that's awesome. Nobody ever does that. (laughs) And uh, we ended up having a great conversation. He gave us about 30 minutes of his time. We had coffee. He shared stories about his uh, time in Ecuador, some of his other travels around the world. And uh, we just had a really fascinating experience meeting with the ambassador to Ecuador. Well, one of the questions I asked the ambassador that afternoon as we met with him, I asked him, I said, sir, tell me, what is the role of an ambassador? 
And the ambassador, without even skipping a beat, he looked at us and he said, the role of an ambassador is to represent the president and the interests of his home country in a foreign nation. I'm here in Ecuador to represent the interests of the president and our nation, the United States, here in Ecuador. And as I thought about that, you know, really, the same applies to us as Christians. You know, the Bible says that we are called to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And just like that ambassador in Ecuador, his role was to represent the president in the interests of the United States of America here, uh, there in Ecuador. The same is true for us. We are ambassadors of King Jesus. We have been given the mission of representing the king of the universe and the interests of our home country, our heavenly kingdom, here in the world today. And God has placed us in all different areas. Some of us here in Chisago County, some of us in Southeast Asia. God has placed us in different occupations, different roles, different places. But all of us as followers of Jesus are called to be ambassadors of the king, representing his interests in this world. And the question then becomes, well, what is the king interested in? And friends, the king is interested in people. He cares about people. He loves people. And the Bible says God wants none to perish, but he wants everyone in the world to come into a relationship with him. And he has given us the great privilege of serving as his ambassadors, declaring to the people of the world that God loves them, that God has a plan and purpose for them, that God desires them to come into a saving relationship with him. Friends, what a privilege we've been given to serve as ambassadors of King Jesus. Well, this morning, we're gonna look at a passage of scripture where Jesus commissions a group of 70 disciples and he sends them out on a mission. And we're going to see today some principles from their experience and the mission that Jesus gave them that we can draw from and apply to our own situation as we ask the question, well, what does it mean for us to live as ambassadors of Jesus Christ? And we're going to find some really great principles here in this passage today that speak to our calling as ambassadors of Jesus. So let's take a look at this passage. I'm going to read this for us. You can follow along in your own Bible if you like. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of them to every town and place where he was about to go. Now, stop for a minute here. 72, Jesus appointed 72. How many of your Bible translations, if you're following along, say 70 and not 72? All right, I see a few hands out there. Here's the deal. The manuscript evidence that we have for the Gospel of Luke, the oldest copies we have of the Gospel of Luke, are basically split 50-50 between whether this was 72 missionaries Jesus called or 70 missionaries Jesus called. Literally, it's about 50-50, even split. And so some translations say 70, some say 72. It's not that big of a deal. Basically, what must have happened at some point during the copying process is somebody either changed the number from 70 to 72 in certain manuscripts or from 72 to 70 in certain manuscripts. But the thing that we need to understand is they didn't change any of the essential teaching in the passage. Okay, so did Jesus send out 70 or 72? It doesn't really matter. Okay? It affects nothing doctrinally in terms of what Luke's Gospels convey. All right? But here's the thing. I personally lean towards the 70 number. All right? I prefer 70. The NIV says 72. I prefer the 70 number. 
Why? Well, I think internally there's some textual reasons why we go with 70. First of all, in Numbers chapter 11, Moses appointed 70 elders to help him lead the people of Israel. All right? And so Jesus has already called 12 disciples, 12 apostles, who were synonymous with the 12 tribes of Israel, right? So it would make sense in some regard that Jesus would then appoint 70 additional missionaries to serve as his ambassadors, as Moses did, following the pattern of the Old Testament, to serve as his representatives. All right? So that's one reason. Another reason some scholars favor 70. Genesis chapter 10, right after the flood of Noah, Genesis chapter 10 says that as Noah's family spread out and repopulated the earth, Genesis 10 gives us a list of 70 nations that ultimately arose following the flood of Noah. And so some scholars say that when Jesus is sending out these 70 missionaries, it is representative of the 70 nations that he is sending out his people to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I, I, I think there's some circumstantial reasons to favor 70. If you like 72, stick with 72. It's not a big deal. It has no effect whatsoever on the theology being taught here in our passage this morning. So let's keep going. Jesus appoints 70, that's my opinion, and he sends them out two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals. Do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick who are there. Tell them the kingdom of God is near you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that sticks to our feet, we wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. He who listens to you listens to me. He who rejects you rejects me. But he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and said, Privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. And we'll take a deep breath and catch, catch our wind here a little bit. What's the deal? Pastor Rick goes on vacation. He gives me like the longest passage in the Bible to preach on. All right? And then he comes back and he gets the good Samaritan next week. 
I mean, this is just not a fair deal if you're asking me something. A couple of things I want to highlight before we get into the heart of my message this morning. The first thing I want to share is a little, a little background on the mission and calling that Jesus has given to these 70 disciples. Understand something, friends. The mission and calling that we've just read about here that Jesus gave to these 70 was a unique mission and calling that he gave to them. All right, to the 70, 2,000 years ago. Some people look at passages of scripture like this and they try to take the principles of this unique mission and calling and they try to apply that to, to all Christian ministry for all times and, and, and that was never what was intended here. All right, there are some principles in this passage that apply to all of us, all Christians for all times, but, but the specific ministry and calling of the 70 is not our specific ministry and calling. Okay, when we go out to witness, we don't always go out two by two. We don't always leave our bag and our purse behind. We don't go out wearing no shoes. We don't always go house to house doing door to door ministry, right? This was a unique calling Jesus gave these 70. This wasn't intended to be a universal principle that applies to all of us, okay? But here's the thing. While the ministry and calling of the 70 was unique, the mission of the 70 applies equally to each and every one of us. We have the same mission, but not the same ministry and calling. What Jesus called them to is not necessarily what he calls us to, okay? Jesus has called Benjamin Vang to be a missionary training up church planters in Southeast Asia. He hasn't called Jason Carlson to be a missionary to Southeast Asia. He's called me to be your pastor here at Lakes Free Church. All right? He's called each of us to different ministries, to different callings, but we all share the same mission. Does that make sense to you? You follow me on this? Okay, so we're not going to look at this passage and take everything that Jesus told the 70 to do and take that literally and apply it to our circumstance. That's not, that's not what we do. What we do is we look at the principles of the mission and we apply those to our unique ministry and calling. All right, so the question then becomes, what are the universal principles that we can draw from this passage that apply to all Christians in all times and all places? Well, this morning, what I want to do is I want to highlight for us from this passage what I see to be three privileges of the ambassador of Jesus Christ, three privileges that we all share, whether you're in Southeast Asia or Lindstrom, Minnesota, or whether God calls you somewhere else in ministry, right? It doesn't matter when you're in the jails of Chisago County doing prison ministry, right? Whether you're ministering to your neighbor across the street, we're going to talk about the privileges of an ambassador that apply to all of us equally. And we find some great principles in our passage. The first principle we see in our passage today is the privilege of our mission, the privilege of our mission as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And we see this highlighted in verses one through seven. Jesus says in verse two, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. When I was a youth pastor prior to coming to Lakes Free Church, this was about 12 years ago, my last mission trip that I ever led was a mission trip to the far corner of Northeast Montana. I was uh, taking a group of students to work on the Blackfeet Indian Reservation in Northeast Montana. 
And uh, it was quite an experience. But one of the things that I'll never forget was driving through Montana, up in northern Montana. And there are stretches as you drive through northern Montana where all you see for miles and miles and miles, as far as the horizon goes, are Montana wheat fields. And there are stretches where you're driving for hours and there's no towns anywhere around you and all you see are wide open spaces and Montana wheat fields. And I kid you not, I remember as we were driving through northwest Montana, I got this experience as I'm driving this van full of teenagers where I, I almost started to panic because I started thinking to myself, there's nothing around here. I mean, there's nothing but sky and wheat, and we're in the middle of nowhere. It was kind of like, you know, agoraphobia, the fear of wide open spaces, right? It, I kind of started having this panic internally, thinking like, what would happen if something went wrong? We're out in the middle of nowhere. But, you know, as you look out in the distance throughout the wheat fields of Montana, as far as the eye can see, the harvest is plentiful. And, you know, when I think about Jesus, when he shares with these 70 missionaries, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. I wonder if Jesus doesn't look out upon the world. And just like each, every individual grain of wheat that we see here in this picture, Jesus sees lost souls, lost people who need to hear the message of the gospel. Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Friends, when it comes to lost souls today, there is more fruit than there are workers to harvest it. This is the reality in our world. Today in our world, we have 1.7 billion Muslims, 620 million Buddhists, 340 million involved in Chinese folk religion, 1 billion Hindus, 670 million involved in tribal religions and animism, 980 million atheists and non-religious. Uh, uh, 14 million Jews. And out of all of these people, friends, we have 140,000 evangelical missionaries serving in the world today. Billions and billions of lost souls. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And friends, I want to encourage you this morning, there is no greater calling than to give your life for the sake of the gospel. There's no greater calling to give your life for the sake of advancing the good news of Jesus Christ. For some of you, it may mean becoming a, a pastor or a missionary. For others of you, it may mean just representing Jesus as an ambassador in whatever vocation he's called you to. But every single one of us, friends, has to ask the question, am I willing to commit my life for the sake of the gospel? And I'll tell you something, there's no greater calling than that. You know, as a, as a pastor, as a youth pastor over the years, I've had the opportunity to talk to young people, many young people, and I'll often ask young people, you know, what, what are you planning on doing with your life? And, and it never ceases to amaze me. So many young people, they say, well, you know, Jason, I'm trying to get good grades in high school so I can get into a good college, so I can ultimately get a good job, so I can make a lot of money, so I can buy a nice big house, so I can retire when I'm you know, 50, 60 years old, so I can enjoy the last 20 years of my life collecting seashells on the beach somewhere. So what? So what? Friends, Jesus calls us to invest our lives in things of eternal value. And, and, and I'm not saying that all of that stuff is wrong. Getting good grades, going to a good school, getting a good job, making a ton of money, having a big... I'm not saying any of that is wrong in and of itself, but the question is, if that's your priority in life, that's a very shallow priority. 
Why not live your life and invest your life in things of eternal value? Things that moth and rust won't destroy, but that will live on for eternity. And friends, Jesus is saying, look at this world. We live in a world where the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. We need believers who will commit to live their lives for the sake of the gospel. And every single one of us can do that. No matter where God's placed us, no matter what our vocation, we can all invest our lives in the cause of eternity through our time, through our money, through our energies, through our dedication to sharing the gospel with people in our lives. One of my favorite quotes, C.T. Studd, a famous missionary, he says, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Friends, that's so true. What are we going to commit our lives to? Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Now, I want you to notice something. What is Jesus' answer to this dilemma? The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. What is Jesus' answer? Jesus calls us to pray for more workers to go into the harvest. Jesus says, pray for more workers to go into the harvest. You need to understand something, friends. Any successful evangelistic effort must begin with prayer. Greg Laurie, the, the well-known evangelist today, he says that there has never been a prayerless revival in history. Revival starts with prayer. The harvest is plentiful. Jesus says, pray. Pray for more workers to go into the harvest. Let me ask you a question, friends. Are you praying for a revival today? Are you praying for the lost people in your life? Is there, is there someone special that you'd like to see come to Jesus Christ? Jesus says, pray. Pray. Now, now I want you to notice something here again in our passage. Who is Jesus asking to pray here? Who's he asking to pray? He's asking the 70 workers that he's already called, right? He's asking the 70 harvest workers who he's, who he's just called. In other words, friends, evangelism isn't a spectator sport. Okay, do you understand that? Evangelism isn't a spectator sport. A lot of Christians, I find, are willing to pray for evangelism, but they're not willing to do evangelism. And Jesus is saying, look, you pray and you go, you go and you pray. These things go hand in hand, all right? There's no distinction. There's no such thing, friends, as Christians who pray and then other Christians who evangelize, okay? That's a foreign concept in the Bible. What there are are praying Christians who evangelize. All right? It's one and the same. It's our calling as followers of Jesus Christ. And here's the question. I wonder what would happen if each of us here today resolved to pray for the lost people in our lives. What if we took that seriously and resolved to pray for the lost people in our lives? I see Ross Winthy over here. Ross, raise your hand. All right, I'm going to pick on you. I hope you, don't, you aren't upset by this. Ross came into my office a week ago to meet with me. He's a young man. He's a college student. He said, Jason, I'm, I'm feeling like God's calling me into ministry. And we started talking about that. And, and Ross was telling me about some of the, the ministry he's involved in right now. He's working with Crew, Campus Crusade, on his local college campus. And Ross was telling me, he said, Jason, just recently I started praying that God would open up opportunities for me to witness to people. And then Ross got all excited. He says, you're never going to believe what happened. I started praying, and all of a sudden all of these opportunities are opening themselves up to me to share the gospel with people. See, friends, that's how it works. Jesus says, go into the harvest field and then pray, and we pray and we go, we go and we pray, and here's the thing, God will begin to open up doors. And can you imagine what would happen in our community if every single one of us here this morning, 
We're going to have about 600 people here between our two services. If every single one of us committed to praying for just a single person in our lives, if we all committed to praying for the salvation of just one lost person in our lives, can you imagine what might happen? Who will you commit to praying for? Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Go into the harvest field and pray for God to raise up more workers. This is the privilege of the mission. The second thing we see in our passage today is the privilege of the message. The privilege of the message that we've been given, verses 8 through 16. In verse 9, Jesus declares the kingdom of God is near you. Jesus sends out these 72 by 2, go into the towns and villages, right? And when you go to these homes, you proclaim to them the kingdom of God is near you. In other words, look at the Messiah has come. He's on his way. He's going to be visiting your village. Are you ready to receive the Messiah? And friends, understand this. The message of the 70 was nothing less than the essence of the gospel that God has broken into human history. The way of salvation has come. And this is the same gospel message that we offer the world today. God has come. The kingdom of God is near you. It's available. It's accessible. God wants you to receive it. I'll never forget a few years back when my father and I, one of the last missions trips we took together was down to Cuba. And we were doing evangelistic seminars throughout the island of Cuba. And it was an incredible experience. One of the stories that both my dad and I have told all over the world is a story of a father and son who have, were walking along a dirt path one day and they came across an anthill that somebody had stepped on and smashed. And uh, it's a great story because no matter where you go in the world, everybody can relate to it because everybody has ants. I remember when I was sharing this story in Cuba, I asked the people, do you have ants here in Cuba? And they all just started laughing, you know, like uh, that, that's a, what an absurd question. Of course we have ants, right? But I shared this story of this father and a son. They were walking down this dirt path one day, and they came across this anthill that somebody had stepped on. And the ants were all laying there smashed and dying, and other ants were scurrying around. And, and this little boy, five, six-year-old little boy, he looked up at his daddy, and he said, Daddy, wouldn't it be great if we could go down there and tell those ants that we love them? Tell those ants we care about them? Help them with their sick and their wounded? And the father, he he looked down at his son and he said, son, the only way we could go down and tell those ants we love them, tell them that we care about them, is if we ourselves could become ants. And if we could live like the ants and talk like the ants by our lives, they would know what we are like and how much we love them. And friends, in the very same way, 2,000 years ago, the creator of the world looked down upon a world that he made, that he loved, our Heavenly Father, he looked down upon his creation and he said, I want to tell you how much I love you. He saw a world ravaged by sin and disease and death and strife and warfare. And Jesus said, I want to come and tell you how much I love you. And so God, in the greatest event that ever took place, broke into human history when he became a man, splitting history into B.C. and A.D., and God personally revealed himself to us so that we could know him and know the eternal life that's available through him. 
John and his famous statement in the Gospel of John. I, I share this in almost every sermon, and if you get tired of it, I'm sorry, because like, there's no more important message in the whole world. There's nothing greater in the whole world than these couple sentences right here. John 3, 16 through 18, John says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Friends, the offer of salvation is available to all of us. The kingdom of God is near you. Now, it's very interesting, inherent to the message of the gospel that we see here in John chapter 3 is the reality that some people are going to refuse to embrace it. Some people are going to refuse to embrace it. And in verses 10 through 16 of our passage today, Jesus makes clear what we see here in John 3.18. Whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. To refuse the gospel, friends, is to refuse Jesus. And to refuse Jesus is to refuse the Creator. Look at verse 16 of our passage this morning. Jesus says to his disciples, he who listens to you listens to me. He who rejects you rejects me. But he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. Now, you know, a lot of people in our world look at passages of Scripture like this and they say, that is so judgmental. I mean, I, I am with Jesus all the way. I mean, his teachings on love and compassion and turning the other cheek. I love that part of Jesus. But, but then he goes and he gets all judgmental on us. But is it really? Is it really judgmental? You know, a few years ago, I was teaching over in Maui, Hawaii for youth with a mission. I know, I know, tough gig, right? All right. God doesn't call us all to Southeast Asia. Some of us, he calls to Maui, and you just have to be faithful to your call, right? And uh, so I'm in Maui teaching for youth with a mission. One afternoon, I had some free time. And so I'm uh, on one of the beaches there in Maui, and I'm deep in Bible study and prayer and no, I'm just kidding. I wasn't. I was just hanging out on the beach. And I'm hanging out on the beach, but that day on the beach, the lifeguards had posted signs like every 50 yards on the beach. They had posted warning signs, dangerous riptide, no swimming. And they weren't allowing anybody into the water. Well, a couple tourists had started kind of getting closer to the water, and I was noticing this lifeguard next to me. He was watching them really closely. And they started, you know, kind of wading into the water and he was kind of watching them, and they started going a little further into the water, and the lifeguards, you know, looking at them. All of a sudden, I see the lifeguard grab his megaphone. One of these people had dove into the waves and started swimming. And the lifeguard grabbed his megaphone, and he said, Hey, get out of the water. No swimming. There's a dangerous current. Now, let me ask you a question. Was that lifeguard's warning message a message of judgment or a message of life? Sort of both, right? I mean, it all depends on how you receive that message. I mean, if you're a tourist hell-bent on swimming in the waves of Maui, right, and you're going to ignore the warning signs and you're going to ignore the lifeguard when he tells you to get out of the water that there's a dangerous current, right? If you go swimming in that water and you get dragged out in the Pacific Ocean by a riptide, then that lifeguard's message is a message of judgment. But that's on you, that's on you because you ignored the clear warning that was given. 
But if you're a tourist and you're waiting in the water and you have no idea that there's a dangerous riptide out there and you start to realize, wow, I was so close to being caught up in a very dangerous situation. You receive that lifeguard's warning as a message of hope, a message of life. You receive it with joy. And you see, friends, the exclusivity of Jesus may sound judgmental to the world, but it's really a message of hope when you understand the dire situation that all of us are in. Romans 3.23 says, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God is holy. We are sinners. There's nothing we could ever do of our own accord to enter into God's presence. When you understand the desperate situation we are in, suddenly the message of the gospel, the kingdom of God is near you. That becomes the greatest news you could ever hear. And you embrace it joyfully because you realize just how desperately you need it. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 10, 10, he says, I have come that you might have life and life to the full. Peter in Acts 4, 12 says, there is no other name given under heaven whereby we can be saved other than the name of Jesus. Friends, what a privilege we have as ambassadors of the greatest message the world has ever heard. What a privilege we have to share with people the message of hope, the message of new life, the message of eternal security that is available in Jesus Christ. Lastly, in our passage this morning, we find the privilege of our monumental blessings. In verses 17 through 24, Jesus highlights for his disciples three blessings we have as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. The first one Jesus highlights for us is the blessing of our of God's protection, the blessing of God's protection. In verse 19, Jesus tells his followers, nothing will harm you. Jesus says, you will tread on scorpions and serpents and all the powers of the enemy will submit to you. Nothing will harm you. Now, again, some people will look at this passage and they'll overapply this passage. They'll apply this too literally. They'll say, look at Jesus said, nothing's going to harm me, right? I'm like Superman here. I'm going to tread on scorpions. I'm going to handle serpents, right? Friends, that's not what Jesus meant, all right? I, I, I read a story in the news a couple years ago. This famous Appalachian evangelist, he was, he was handling snakes to prove to the people watching him that he had authority over the serpents because Jesus says nothing's going to harm you. And guess what happened? He got bit by a snake. It killed him, all right? Friends, handling snakes isn't a sign of faithfulness. It's a sign of foolishness. Don't do that, okay? That's not what Jesus is saying, Okay? When Jesus says nothing will harm you, he's not saying that we all of a sudden become physically invincible as his followers. That's not what he's saying. In fact, 12 of the 13 disciples ended up becoming martyrs for the gospel. Ten chapters later after this, in Luke 21, 16 through 18, Jesus says, look it, you're going to face persecution. They're even going to put you to death because of me. So he obviously doesn't mean we all of a sudden become physically invincible when he says nothing will harm you. So what does Jesus mean when he says nothing will harm you? Well, the Apostle Paul illuminates this for us in Romans 8, 35 through 39. 
Paul says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, when Jesus says nothing will harm you, he's talking about our true selves, our eternal selves. We are secure in Jesus Christ for all of eternity as his ambassadors. Nothing can harm us when we are secure in the eternal love of Jesus Christ. Take the Apostle Paul, for example. You read the book of Acts. Remember the Apostle Paul? They come to the Apostle Paul. They say, hey, Paul, you better stop preaching this message of Jesus or we're going to torture you, Paul. What does Paul say? He says, bring it on. I'll be able to identify with the sufferings of my Lord and Savior. Oh, okay, smart guy. All right, well, then we're going to put you in prison, Paul. We're going to put you in prison and we're going to chain a new guard to you every couple hours. What do you think of that, Paul? Paul says, that's awesome. I'll be able to lead two or three of them to the Lord every day. Oh, okay, wise guy. Well, well, how about this, Paul? We're going to kill you. And Paul says, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Friends, what do you do with a guy like that? Any, anything you want. Because when you're living in light of eternity and you understand God's promise of his eternal security in Jesus, you never have to fear The second blessing we have, Jesus tells us in verse 20, your names are written in heaven, the blessing of eternal security. Your names are written in heaven. I remember my first year of marriage to Kim, our first anniversary, uh, actually it was our first Valentine's Day together. And I had booked online reservations at this fancy hotel, downtown Minneapolis, uh, included this fancy dinner package and this, you know, romantic suite at this, you know, really ritzy hotel. And I'm thinking, this is going to be awesome. You know, I'm going to have a real romantic night with my wife. And well, we pull up to the hotel and the valet meets us there and he takes our car and another guy brings our baggage into the front desk. And I mean, it was impressive. It was like full scale treatment, right? We walk up to the front desk and we go to check in and they can't find our names in their reservation book. And I remember I was just devastated. I mean, all my hopes were just dashed. I'm like, what do you mean you can't find our names? Your names aren't here. What do you mean my names aren't here? I I made a reservation. They're not in our book. Friends, Jesus tells us that when we have a relationship with him, you will never be turned away. Your names are secure, written in the book of life for all of eternity. Ephesians tells us, the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14, you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Friends, Jesus will never turn you away. Have you embraced new life in Jesus? Have you asked Jesus to become the Lord of your life, to forgive you of your sins, to make you a new creation? Jesus says your names are then written in the book of life in heaven for all of eternity and they will never be erased and you will never be turned away. There's nothing greater, friends, than putting your trust in Jesus Christ, the blessings of our eternal security. Lastly, today, Jesus highlights for us the blessing of God's revelation. 
Verses 23 through 24, Jesus tells his followers, blessed are the eyes that see what you see because many others long to see what you see. Friends, do you understand this? The privilege we have today as Jesus' people, Abraham, Moses, David, Ruth, Esther, Joseph, Daniel, all these great heroes of the Old Testament, they never knew the Messiah. They never had the privilege of knowing the Messiah. They never had the privilege of reading God's revelation in the New Testament. They never knew what it was to have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit alive within them. We are very privileged today, friends. Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. Hebrews 11, that great chapter known as the Hall of Fame of Faith, in verse 13, all these people, the Hall of Fame of Faith, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. What a privilege we have as believers today, friends, to know the Messiah to have God's word to guide us through our lives, to have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit and the growth of his fruit in our lives. It's just amazing. Friends, as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, we have been given such monumental blessings. This fact alone should compel us to ask the Lord, how would you use me? Where would you have me go? To whom would you have me share the hope of the gospel? Friends, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. We've been given incredible privileges as ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Will you join me? Will you commit with me to serving the king of the universe? There's no greater privilege than that. Let me close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this incredible teaching you've given us this morning in Luke again. Jesus, I pray that as we leave here today, we would be inspired, Lord, to carry out the mission and calling that you've given each of us. Each of us here has a unique calling and mission, God. We're all in service of the ambassador, as ambassadors of the king of the universe. God, let us do that faithfully. Let us do that with great joy as we think about the privileges we've been given. And God, I pray, Lord, as we think about the harvest in our lives, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. God, may we be people who care about the harvest, who commit our lives to the harvest. And may we serve, Lord, with gladness as we look for opportunities each and every day to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let me leave you with these words from 2 Corinthians 15. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. God bless you.